0: All right, we'll go ahead and get this special meeting of the Vacaville City Council um, started. And with that, we'll have a roll call.
1: Council Member Stockton? Here. Ritchie?
2: Here. Silva? Here. Chapman? Here. Roberts? Here. Vice Mayor Wiley? Here. Mayor Carley?
0: Here. Will you stand with me for the pledge in a moment of silence? All right, we will start with the presentation on housing and development. Mr. City Manager.
3: Thank you, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the City Council. Um, First of all, I'd just like to say thank you to the council for making time out of your busy schedules to accommodate this special meeting. Uh, As you know, at the last council meeting, we did uh, an introduction to the subject of housing and we recognize that it's a very important topic. And we have a couple of new council members uh, with us uh, as a result of the recent election. And we just wanted to make sure that as we go into your goal setting session and priority setting session here in in next month, um, that we're Uh, giving you the best information that we can give you uh, with regards to the general plan vision, how that's uh, what's in there and how to achieve that. And especially on the subject of housing, we wanted to take another uh, step at giving you some more information on that. So tonight our community development director, Erin Morris, has been working very diligently with her team and uh, others on our staff to give you this presentation tonight. And so we thank you for the opportunity to present and we look forward to your Uh, discussion and your questions. So with that, I'll turn it over to Ms. Morris.
1: Thank you, Mr. City Manager, and good evening, Mayor Carly and members of council. Tonight's presentation fits in with these four presentations that are happening sequentially. So I just wanted to go over briefly the roadmap. Uh, Last week, um, we talked about the community vision and land use implementation tools, part one, and that presentation focused just almost exclusively on the general plan, the specific plans and the ways the city identifies where we want housing and other kinds of land uses. Uh, Tonight's meeting focuses on housing development. We'll touch on community demographics and the connection between housing and growing our economy. Uh, Then next week, um, back to back, be back here with community vision and land use tools part two. And this will touch on growth management, including the urban reserve, our housing strategy and how it relates directly to our housing element. And we will do a thorough housing element presentation. And the last of this four pack is that on May 9th, we'll be bringing an inclusionary zoning study session to the council and further into the housing strategy. So with that, my presentation this evening has six parts and some of them are longer than others. So I'm gonna just identify where we're gonna go tonight. So we're gonna start off by talking about people and this part focuses on some of the community demographics in Vacaville. Then I'm gonna highlight the housing strategy just very briefly because it is the city's local vision for housing that's sort of additive to our general plan. I'm then gonna talk about homes and this is the existing housing stock here in Vacaville and historic development information about housing in Vacaville as well as what's in the pipeline now and what affordable housing is. And then we're gonna talk about city action and this is the city's role in housing development. And in some ways that will contrast with the private investment piece where we talk about what the development community's role is. And I'm gonna close with a really high level um, state law discussion because ultimately, we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of that when we talk about the housing element next week. So starting off with some population trends, Vacaville's population increased um, from 71,000 in 1990 to 98,000 in in 2021, and this represents a 9.6% average annual growth increase. And what's notable about that is that's actually very similar to the state of California. It's very similar to Solano County. Um, In our county, though, there are three communities that have a much, quite a bit higher growth rate. That includes Rio Vista, Dixon, and Fairfield, and then Vallejo and Benicia have a much lower growth rate. Um, But I guess the takeaway on this is that we are consistent with state trend, and California population growth on a whole has slowed down, and and so has our population growth over the last um, decades. In our community, um, our people are at a median age of 37.6. We do actually have a wide variety of people at a variety of ages, but the median is 37.6. One fifth of Vacaville residents are in household formation age of 20 to um, 35, I think it is. And that's significant because that's the time in people's lives when they're moving out of some kind of parental situation or other and looking for their own home to rent or buy. Um, In contrast to Vacaville, um, Rio Vista is quite a bit older on average, Uh, Venetia is a little bit older, Vallejo is a little bit older, and then Dixon, Fairfield, and Sassoon have slightly younger uh, median ages. Uh, This chart is dense, and I I don't expect people to take a lot away from it, just, just trying to look at it in the fullness, but this is a 2022 data on median and various incomes in Solano County as a whole. This is not Vacaville specific. What this shows you is that in Solano County, our median income for a family of four is $108,700. So a family of four that makes 80% of that, which would be $86,800, is considered low income. And a family that's making $54,000 a year is considered very low income. I'm highlighting these numbers because as we move through the presentation, I'm gonna give some income examples to kind of put some color to who are the folks who are looking for housing, how much money do they make and how much does it cost for them to find that housing? And then this slide talks about our labor force. And this is really still pretty high level. This comes from our housing element. It just shows what back of those top industries are. And so health and education is at the very top. Um, We have a a good financial and professional um, group. We have manufacturing, wholesale and transportation. We have retail, we have construction. Um, These are the main industries we have here, our top industries. And so as we get into again, incomes and housing costs, um, I want the council to be thinking about this. And there's another chart because this theme is about housing and housing affordability and occupations. So this chart shows what different occupations can afford if the housing is considered affordable to them. And so I'm going to step back a little bit. The state of California and the federal government thinks that people shouldn't spend more than 30% of their income on housing. And the, the com the premise behind that is if you're spending no more than 30% of your income on housing, you have money for health care, you have money for um, great food, you have money for the things that make life great. So this chart shows some wages associated with different professions, and you have to do a little creative math in your head, but if we think about that a low-income person and family of the four in Vacaville makes $86,000, so you could take a full-time fast food worker add, maybe they live with a childcare worker and they have two kids. That's definitely a low-income family in Vacaville. Um, an auto mechanic, again, this is not personal to any particular person, um, combined with the cashier, they are just below the line and they would be considered a low-income family if they had two kids with them. So that's, that's what this chart illustrates. And it also shows um, with the red line, the cost of a typical two-bedroom rental in Vacaville And it shows also the cost of a typical monthly mortgage. So it it really just illustrates that a lot of the jobs we have in our community do not provide sufficient income to afford market rate housing. Okay, now we get to go to the city's vision. Um, So the housing strategy was Um, adopted by the council last year, last June. And it's a very dense document. I recommend all of you read it. And I I, I find it does not put me to sleep unlike some of the longer dense documents with lots of data. But I just wanna summarize the key findings because this is our city vision for housing. So essentially it found that our growing community over the last decade has become much more racially diverse and wealthier with higher educational attainment. And actually our incomes in our city went up Well, and our poverty went down over the last decade. That's a really positive thing. It found that our population is aging um, while continuing to stay in their owner occupied single-family homes. And that's uh, something we can talk about a little later. We are an aging population, despite the fact that our median age is around 37. Uh, Rents are rising rapidly. And I think we all hear about that here. Um, And that um, means that more than half of the rental um, folks that are renting are considered rent burden because they're paying definitely way more than 30% of their their monthly income for their rent. And then the other finding, which relates to the connection between housing and jobs is that most city residents commute to jobs outside of the city, despite the fact that we have a lot of local jobs. Continuing with the housing strategy. Um, So housing production in the city of Vacaville has been declining for the past four decades. And I can, I have charts in a minute that show that. And of course, that means that also is a decline in available housing for folks to, to live in. Um, in Vacaville, the majority of our households um, are owner occupied single family units. We'll get to a chart in a moment. And what our strategy found is that the lack of new housing supply has caused prices and rents to keep going up and um, with really not necessarily a, an end on that. Okay, so we're gonna now get into some really specific to Vacaville data. I'm gonna talk about historic housing development trends. I have data going back to the 1960s, but it's summarized in a chart. I wanna talk about existing housing types in our community. I wanna walk the council through all the existing housing developments. I'm not gonna go one by one. I have charts that show what we have in our pipeline. I'm gonna talk about what guides our actions on housing development as a government, as a, specifically as a local government, talk about what we can and can't do to affect housing development, uh, the factors that affect the cost of housing, and then also the connection between housing production and economic development opportunities. Okay, so this, this chart, um, as you're looking at it, uh, the yellow line represents um, the city's population. Uh, since 1940, when not a lot of people lived here. (laughs) So as you can see, it starts off in 1940 and it rises fairly steadily to in 2020, this says there were 102,000 residents in Vacaville. The blue line, um, which starts in 1960, because that's when we have building permit data, shows that between 1960 and 1980, housing production was just uh, steadily increasing. And we really just almost like straight up. And the peak was the decade of the 1980s. In the 1980s, the city produced almost 8,000 housing units. And so that was definitely the high in the history of the city of Vacaville. We had another, not peak, because it's a little bit less than, but in 90 and 91, um, there was another, a lot lot of building permit activity, a lot of houses being built. And then ever since 1990, um, housing production um, has just been decreasing. It's not been a, a plummet or anything, but it's definitely been on the decline. So part of why we're talking about housing, part of why you're talking about housing a lot when the community talks about housing, if you sort of think about the space between that rising yellow line of population and that declining uh, blue line of housing production, there's people that need housing. Um, and there's, there's a lot of ways to get into that, but I'm gonna keep going through the rest of my slides for now. So this slide just takes out the population and just shows building permit issuance since 1980. So, this shows the decline from 80 coming down to sort of the um, sort of slow um, early 80s, the spikes that happened in the 90s, where we had two years of really strong housing production, a plummet um, as the 90s wore on. Uh, early 2000s were pretty odd for housing production everywhere. But as you can see, Vacaville's never returned to the really high housing production levels and is kind of staying at that lower level consistently year after year. Okay, we're gonna talk about housing types in Vacaville. And this this slide's a little bit generic because it is definitely one of those type of slides. But the point is we do have a lot of different kinds of housing in Vacaville. Uh, We do have a lot of single family homes that are a lot of them are owner occupied, um, actually on trend with our country, uh, but higher than people in our state of California. Um, We have um, apartments, we do have condominiums, we have duplexes, we have townhomes, and we have them in rental and ownership. We don't have a lot of those last things I mentioned, but we do have um, we do have a variety of housing in Vacaville. Um, affordable housing is a term that gets used a lot. Um, and um, whenever I hear the term, I always think, is it a capital A affordable housing or a lowercase a? And that doesn't mean much to non-planners, but I'm gonna get into that. So according to state government, you know, as I mentioned earlier, your housing is affordable to you if you're paying 30 to 35% of your gross household income to pay for it. And otherwise you are considered housing burdened because you're spending way more of your income on housing. Um, A type of affordable housing, and this is the deed restricted, capital A, capital H affordable housing. This is a type of affordable housing that cities build typically with money from the city that has a deed restriction that ensures that the housing remains affordable for a defined time period. And that time period is typically 55 years. And we do have some deed restricted affordable housing in our community, uh, particularly in the Rocky Hill neighborhood. We have one project Pony Express almost finished. That's an example of deed restricted. Uh, But this is one area that the city of Vacaville has not successfully produced a lot of this in, in recent times. There are other kinds of, I'm gonna say, lowercase a affordable housing. And some of those terms can be attainable housing, uh, different types of housing that are more affordable based on their design, the size of the house, the size of the lot. And that's really um, the term missing middle has become a popular term to describe attainable housing. And I have some slides that are gonna just show different examples of what missing middle housing can look like. But before we go there, I just wanna show some pictures of deed restricted affordable housing um, in different places. So. The first image on the left is our um, the Rocky Hill veterans housing, which is a really unique design um, and it looks really cool from the air and also in person. Uh, the image on the right is an act- it's a sweat equity ownership townhouse project, two stories in Santa Rosa. Just I picked it out because the form is kind of low. These houses are kind of modest. They actually are deed restricted, affordable, but they also had that sweat equity component and they are all owned by 60 individual families who helped build their houses. Uh, this slide shows two more housing projects. The one on the left is in Napa, it's a rental apartment. I think the point with this is that deed restricted affordable homes are not always five or six stories over a podium structure or towers. A lot of times they have, they're have they they're also very low scale to fit in with, with neighborhoods. And then the image on the right, um, I'm trying to recall where I got it from, but it's showing just that three story apartment building, um, pretty typical um, for suburban areas, um, more like Vacaville. And then this chart, I will not stay here too long, but um, this is our eight year arena um, uh, regional housing needs allocation from the last eight years. And the takeaway here is although we overproduced in the category of above moderate housing and moderate housing by a lot, we did not meet our arena in, in housing for extremely low, very low or low income um, households. And that's part of why I'm making the point about the, the need for the deed restricted affordable housing. Going back to housing types, this slide, I think I've already touched on this, but it shows how our housing is broken into categories. Uh, the, big, uh, the bigger pie, that yellow piece, is the, our housing inventory at 72%, single-family detached. And then the other kinds are all the other kinds of housing we have, including multifamily of different, uh, different levels. And then the small pie chart on the right uh, illustrates that 62% owner-occupied uh, Vacaville stat. And then, of course, the rest of the housing units in our community are renter-occupied. So um, this is this summarizes that again, but just not with a pie chart. If you take, if you think about what is missing middle housing, this says that in our community, we have about 72% single family, about 22% would be considered missing middle. And then we've got mid rise at about 5%. So I want to talk about actually specifically what missing middle housing is, because this is something that we have been talking about, and I want to show some pictures. So, I don't these pictures i don't just I don't love, but the reason why I'm showing you this slide is it's intended to show missing middle housing is typically lower scale development. It's designed to fit in either near or within existing neighborhoods or established residential areas. It's definitely not tall apartment buildings or big buildings. So this uh, images show you duplexes, uh, courtyard units, what we're calling small multiplexes cottage courts, little houses organized around common open space, stacked duplexes, townhouses, live work. So these are all examples of when we say missing middle housing, what we're talking about. And then these are some images from the wild or from Vacaville in the case of the one on the left. Uh, That's the Portofino project. Um, This Portofino is a classic example of missing middle housing. These have attached duplexes. um, They have the driveways are grouped together. um, There's individual entries, but this is definitely an example of when we talk about missing middle housing. The one on the right is um, a townhouse complex in Napa. and this one is probably, I could picture this in certain parts of Ackerville maybe, but this is an example of just a more urban townhouse form uh, found in Santa Rosa near one of their train stations. And I'm aware we don't have a train station here. But this form the point on this one is that townhouses can be industrial looking they can be residential looking, but fundamentally they're not very tall or big and they're, they're designed specifically because they are more affordable than larger, larger housing. And then this is my my staff and my favorite missile, mis, missing middle housing illustration. This is called a cottage court development. It's newer. I can't remember exactly where it is, but the idea is that each house has a little smaller yard, but they benefit from common amenities that make it a lovely place, lovely place to live. Okay. So now, as I'm going to keep moving through my presentation, I want to talk about what the city currently has in terms of housing inventory in terms of what is actually currently in review or under construction. So this first chart um, shows the the projects and the unit counts associated with all the housing developments that are currently in the development review process. So these are not approved projects. These are projects that we're working on. The notable ones are definitely North Village 2 in terms of unit count. We have a brand new uh, proposal out east of Leisure Town called the Raisins Development that has a lot of units. Uh, we actually have quite a bit of housing development under review right now. And these are all projects that are likely headed headed toward the council in the, in the time ahead. Um, these housing projects on this, say so not in plan check, these are approved projects that have, they've been approved by the city, but they've not yet gone into the construction process. So they're not in the building division trying to pull a permit. Of these, actually the two that are bolded, these are two approved deed restricted affordable housing projects, Allison and Oak Grove. They're approved, they could be built, but they're not in plan check yet. I do wanna note that Green Tree is working towards submitting for the infrastructure and the apartment project. And I think that's coming, but it's just not quite here yet. And there's more. Uh, these are other projects that are not in plan check. Um, we expect to have... Um, of this list, which includes 700 Park. We're expecting that to come in this year for sure. Uh, Lower Lagoon Valley, we're expected to see some things in our building division, some housing starts there. Uh, but again, we have quite a few approved projects that have not yet come forward to be built. And then we have three projects that are currently in plan check. Permits have not been issued yet. These include Southtown Apartments, Nut Tree Apartments, and a mixed use project in downtown Backville. And then Construction has been still quite quite brisk, um, despite you know some of the challenges. Uh, we have all of these projects under construction. Notably, Pony Express is it's really close to being done, but it's still under construction. It's a deed restricted affordable housing project. Uh, Peabody Road Apartments, they pulled their permits and they've gotten going um, and Farmstead and Roberts Ranch, Northfield Unit Seven. Again, we've got some hammer swinging out in our community. And then recently completed projects, um, Harbison and townhomes, the reserve at Browns Valley, Frighton Landing. Uh, these are all projects that have been completed in fairly recent time. And I just have a few images of these, but I'm gonna kind of keep moving because I want to get to the council discussion. So um, here's where we're gonna talk about what sort of what the city's role is in housing development, because it turns out we do have a big role, but we don't probably have the biggest role. (laughs) So um, the last presentation I gave um, talked about the general plan, the vision, and how we set the table as a city for housing and for other things through the general plan, through the specific plans, through our um, development review process, et cetera. Um, And that really, that is the foundation for um, how we decide what's going to be built where and what it's gonna be in terms of density and whatnot. Um, and so that's the, this slide just puts that into words. We have a general plan, we have a housing strategy. We are required to have a housing element. We'll talk more about that next week. We have to meet our regional housing needs allocation through planning. Um, the other factor is always gonna be market demand um, because if people aren't coming to us to build housing, we cannot make that happen. So this next illustration shows that this, the concept behind housing development, there's like these five major components. Um, There's, you know, the the construction of the housing, the financing of the housing, deciding where and when to build that housing, there's the housing type and there's the entitlements. So if you look at this, it kind of could feel like, oh, the city gets to make a lot of decisions on this stuff. But we do in fact have a general plan that says where housing is gonna go, what density it's gonna be, and where housing is not gonna go. But ultimately, we don't decide which site a developer decides to build on. And we don't decide or have any role in them figuring out how they're gonna to afford to build. And we don't even decide when they're gonna file their application. They like We get that question a lot in planning. Why is this project being proposed? It's like, well, this is the developers, right? So really the only piece in this little five-slice five puzzle that we control is the entitlement process, like how we process development applications, how long it takes, um, I mean, how people are treated, how the community feels, how the developer feels, but really in the terms of housing development, we do not control a lot about the actually making the housing happen piece of it. And then this chart shows that again, in just a little bit different way. So in the city, we plan for and allow all kinds of housing in different locations per our general plan and per our other community documents. We have to approve the housing through at minimum um, a building permit process and typically through a full planning entitlement process with public hearings and and neighborhood meetings and that kind of thing. Uh, We can have um, incentive programs and we can um, also target our fees at different kinds of housing or different kinds of development. And then uh, we can, in fact, sometimes offer affordable housing subsidies to make affordable housing projects happen. We have to have money for that. That's one of the challenges, but that's another role that cities play. The developer has to find the site get the financing and the funding, uh, design plans, get through plan check, build them, and then ultimately, you know, manage, maintain, or sell sell what gets produced. So this chart shows again, this point that the city has control over our specific requirements, our development impact fees, our permitting and development timelines, those kinds of things. We don't really have control over a lot of the other aspects of housing development. I mean, in particular, these days, construction costs, mortgage rates, um, land value, um, demographics, uh, how our community is growing, how many new homes are entering, entering the market at any given time. These are all things that are really outside the city's control. So just highlighting again, our role, we get to establish the community vision. We do that through our general plans, specific plans, land use and development code, design guidelines, et cetera. We get to um, have the development review process um, in most cases, except for when the state says no, Um, but we have a whole process for how we diligently review and evaluate and ultimately decide on what gets approved in what location um, in terms of housing. Um, And this is one of our primary roles. And the other role we have is on the setting of development impact fees. And just last year, this council adopted new, refreshed development impact fees for the first time in 30 years. That's a really big deal for this city because it allowed us to do a bunch of things. I mean, for one, we have fees that are set to build the infrastructure that's needed for these new projects that are coming. And there's a direct relationship between the fees, the costs, and what needs to happen. And um, it, it was a good good thing to do after 30 years. The second thing that the new development impact fee schedule does is it actually has different levels of, of fee based on housing size. So the old one, any house paid the same fee. So if you're a developer, you have really no incentive to ever build a small house because you'll pay the same development impact fee, whether it's 4,000 square feet or whether it's 1,200 square feet. So the new fee schedule, which is currently being implemented, allows developers that incentive that they actually have a lower fee if they build a smaller house. The other part that the city controls is having a fee deferral program or offering incentives. Uh, the council will be um, formally reviewing, considering the fee deferral program next Tuesday, and we are gonna be bringing you an incentive program over the next couple meetings. There are a lot of factors that affect affect housing development and I'm not gonna dwell on this slide. I think, I mean, there's just, there's a lot, this. Is trying to illustrate to you that there's just a lot of factors that affect housing development, again, that are not really the things that the city controls. This does show we do affect it though, through our permitting and development timelines, the kinds of things we require, but still many of these things are really kind of market driven. Okay, we're getting toward the fifth or sixth thing, in my presentation. So I just wanna talk briefly about the connection between housing production and economic development. Um, so here in Vacaville, housing is a part of our comprehensive economic development strategy, and we do see the connection between trying to attract industry and having housing that serves that industry. Um, when you don't have a variety of housing types, um, you can't you don't have housing for all the different kinds of people that work here in Vacaville or even live here in Vacaville. Uh, and these could be spanning these low-wage, lower-wage workers. Um, and some of those folks are these community-serving occupations like nursing aides and folks that provide child care. And, and actually, even in the logistics industry, these are all the lower-wage workers. But also, it impacts seniors and people who have fixed incomes who cannot bear the rising cost of housing. And it certainly affects those um, people in their household formation years, these young professionals and young families who are trying to get started in life. This chart um, is a little, little bit hard to see, but it's not too bad. This just shows, like, again, back, going back to rent and thinking about your, your early days as a household for, former, um, this is just showing that you have to earn at least 2.9 times the current minimum wage to afford an average two-bedroom house in, in California. So it just it's making that connection that lower-wage workers especially have a hard time um, finding a place to live where they're not going to be um, significantly uh, rent-burdened. I'm going back to the comprehensive economic development strategy. So um, housing um, can positively affect the city's ability to attract high paying occupations. Um, And that's one thing the housing strategy, our vision talked about, which the housing element talks about a little bit less, is that the housing strategy talks about how we're trying, as a city, been trying to attract and been successful attracting biotech and these really Great companies that are offering great, high-paying jobs, but with that comes people that are moving to this area, and where we don't have a lot of inventories, and that those executive housing or those, you know, those those fancier homes that those kind of folks are looking for. So um, I think a point with housing production, economic development is it's not just for the lower-wage workers, and it's not really, it's not just for the middle-wage workers. It's really for everyone, including the higher-wage workers. And then I have this slide up, um, and I, I'm not gonna speak deeply about the base because I'm just starting to get to know the Travis Air Force Base and um, its housing needs. But um, housing production in Vacaville directly, directly affects Travis Air Force Base. And in essence, um, as a base, they have most of the people that work there and their families live off base. And so, if Vacaville and, and Fairfield and the communities in Solano County aren't producing housing, it's, it's really a negative thing. And I will let others get into more detail on that, but I just wanted to make that point. Okay, so now, because we, next week, we're gonna be talking about the housing element and that's very really state driven. I just wanna talk briefly about the state's role in housing. So there is this whole recognized, which we've talked about a lot um, recently, um, challenge in California about not having enough housing to, to house the people that live here and that wanna live here. So the state has its whole goal of having adequate housing for everyone. And they administer that through a lot of laws, which we're getting familiar with, as well as the housing element requirement. They do offer certain carrots, and we'll talk about that more next week in terms of grants and for infrastructure, affordable housing, housing planning, they offer money. Um, but they also keep um, giving us new laws. And in, in italics, it says on the slide, if the cities don't figure out their housing challenges, then the state will do it for them. But the idea is that the state has gotten more and more into the business of local government with, I think, the mindset that, well, the cities and the counties are not producing enough housing, so we as a state are gonna step in and we're gonna basically you know, figure it out for us. So part of, I think, the point with this slide is that the best we can do with, with local control and with housing production, it's better for us because then we don't have... In every case, the state's stepping in, um, telling us exactly what to do. I'm gonna skip these slides, I don't think they're... Talk about next steps. So um, this is the second part of a four-part series. Um, next week, we'll be talking about growth management, the housing strategy, in a little more detail and how it dovetails into the housing element. And then we're bringing you the fee deferral program uh, next week, which is related to um, incentives. And then on May 9th, um, there's gonna be a presentation about the inclusionary housing. And this is a housing strategy, um, program. It's also a housing element program. So we're going to bring a study session to this council, so you all can get familiar and give give staff some direction. And with that, um, I'm available for questions or comments.
0: For the presentation, and I'm sure this can be a nice discussion, uh, Mr. City Manager. I know that there's probably more that you'd like to share as we we step into this.
4: Well,
3: first of all, I want to thank uh, Director Morris for her thorough presentation, and again for everybody that's helped on that. And I know that there's probably a bunch of questions and a uh, great opportunity for dialogue, but what I wanted to just insert at this present time is is that what we're hoping to, what I'm hoping to accomplish when we get ready for um, the goal setting session is is that, you know, when we talked with you or shared with you at the last meeting about the general plan vision uh, and what is the, the vision, you know, it's interesting that one graph that I think was on chart or uh, slide 13, you know, it followed the traditional path of, you know, everybody wanted a single family home in the in the 80s. And then now the population has exceeded their housing growth. And, but then you look at some of the other demographic information that she shared with you that shows um, that a lot of our workforce is, does not make an adequate income to to rent or purchase here. Um, it also shows that um, our, our, housing production is keeping up with that general plan vision of 75% single family, 25% multifamily. Uh, But we're also looking at the economic development growth that we have and with the council's continued support of our bio manufacturing strategy and our advanced manufacturing strategies, we're hoping to increase the, the wealth of our local community. But then there was another slide that shows that a lot of people are coming in from outside where they live outside coming in. And then a lot of people are going outside. As well, and so we truly are trying to to build uh, public and private investment to create wealth in our community, so that people don't have to travel outside Vacaville to to live and work in the same place. But at the same time, um, there's still you know some some work to be done with with based on the data that we have here. And so what I'm hoping to that we're we're going to provide to you is uh, an opportunity to explore, do we have the right vision for the housing? We do have, you know, we have been building what the general plan has been saying uh, primarily, but when you look at the workforce and the needs of those uh, in our community that um, because of land prices, because of housing prices and everything and and lack of available supply for multifamily, uh, especially um, that drives the price up. So how do we adjust, uh, address that? And so as uh, Ms. Morris mentions to you in, upcoming sessions, we'll be talking about important things from the housing strategy, such as inclusionary zoning, because we've talked to the council before about our current practice of providing affordable housing is, is a much different one than you find in other places. And it does have its limits. And primarily the, the big limit is, is that our methodology relies on city-owned land to contribute towards a, you know, helping build true affordable housing we're running out of land. And so ultimately we'll hit that threshold where we need to do something different. And I would say that based on the the slide that shows our arena numbers for very low and low, we need to do something sooner than later. And so we'll be talking about that piece um, at an upcoming (laughs) meeting, but you know, so um, I say this to just, you know, share with you all that, if there's changes that need to be done, this is a great opportunity to talk about those um, and, and you know, go forward in terms of what is the right product type for, for this community. And so with that, um, we'll, we're here to answer all your questions.
0: Well, thank you. And uh, as I wait for anyone who wants to ask the questions and, and then I'll eventually open it up to the public. Uh, it's, a, it's a real question that sometimes as I see these slides, um, don't need to go to slide 39, but what it called out was what's in our control versus what's not, and I think that's important. And we often hear what's in the way, whether we're talking to those who are in the development world and how do we hit our numbers. So um, if, if we're looking at this from a policy perspective and we see that there are deed-restricted deed uh, affordable housing with a capital A, it's coming but we don't necessarily get to the dictate the timeline. and I believe this gets to that point. What are we doing proactively so that we can assure you know we can ensure that we can address those who truly are in need here versus how much do we step in into the development world and telling them what we want through incentives? And so I think that that's going to be an area of. That it's going to be interesting when it comes back is um, we control the fees and we control the incentives. We don't control the cost of the land. Um, we control the culture of process and how developers interact with us and I've had the privilege of sitting in on a couple of what I would call client-centric introductions and I think that that's it's a real positive side so I appreciate you and your staff for doing that. Um, one, just as a basic question because I remember working for the city back in the 80s when it was a boom and a decline. If we if we had to look at I think today's averages were somewhere near less than 300 uh, permits pulled per year. Fine. Um, okay. Yeah. So I think by 2015 we saw it at its lowest. Uh, point versus in in the late 80s and early 90s could you could you um, help me understand and i'm sure a lot of the public or anyone up here understand from your perspective what is the the biggest obstacle that the city controls that is not the capital a it's just the lowercase a affordability through our 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 incentives our fees so that it helps kind of make that you know some of the decisions that we'll make
1: um, I, as I, as your community development director for the last year and a half, um, I've talked to a lot of people about this issue, this, this question and this issue. And so there's actually a, a sort of a common answer, both in Vacaville and elsewhere too, but in Vacaville specifically, is that our community is perceived as a place that it takes a lot of time to get through the development review process. And I'm just gonna say if, as your community development director, I don't necessarily think time is a bad thing as far as the time the city needs to thoroughly review a project, put conditions of approval or whatever together, take it through the process. There is a natural need as, as a city that wants high quality development to, to be thorough and and make sure you're, you're doing a good job. But um, there is a, a, a concern about how long it takes projects to get to decision. And that's, that's a complaint of developers everywhere, but there's some specific examples in Vacaville And back back in the 2000s, I'm not even talking about recent examples. Um, Lack of certainty is a big thing for developers um, who are deciding where to invest. If they, you know, if it was as easy as going to a city, going, oh, that's the color that site is, okay. The zoning says this, and they can go in and and build. It's never that easy anywhere, pretty much. So there's just that uncertainty factor as, as a control factor. And then as I've been personally working with my staff on the urban reserve study, which will be coming forward to the council, and we were looking at trends, I think there were a few other factors in why housing declined so much um, that are somewhat in the city's control. So it was around, I can't remember what year it was, somewhere in the 80s or 90s, um, the city enacted the planned growth ordinance, and it's now actually against the law to have the planned growth ordinance. So it's been set aside and it will have to go away. Interestingly, it's from looking at the data, that ordinance did not stop anyone from getting a building permit. Because we always had enough allocations to cover what was happening in those days, but when talking to the development community, there was a perception that Vacaville didn't want housing because of the plan growth ordinance. So that's an anecdotal story I've heard out there on the street about why why development slowed down. But you know, I just I have to say, in fairness to to people everywhere and to the council, development slowed down a lot in a lot of places around this time. There were a lot of you know kind of boom times in the 80s and 90s, and uh, most cities are not as busy as they were back in that those days, for whatever
0: reason. Yeah, thank you. Um, from, when I look at those incentives and the fees, obviously, some of the challenges that I've heard in speaking with the development community is, is what's different about Vacaville? What's the a potential high cost um, that really just makes it difficult? And I hear numbers like between 500000 or 600000 per door, even for um, low-income housing developments and that just I I always hear it doesn't pencil out and so that they're going to look where they are going to be able to do this. I'm concerned that sometimes what we can do for incentives is very important because what we don't what I don't want to do is I don't want to give up our ability to say this is the kind of uh, homes that we want for our community the style of our homes especially as from from my perspective as we continue to look forward say with the urban reserve, um, we've experimented with um, a, you know, a, what I would call not a complete master plan development of Southtown with some of its uh, advantages and challenges with development agreements. But um, when, when this is going to come back to us, is there going to be recommendations as far as places where the city has uh, taken some time to study and look at to say this is a good example what a master plan could look like for the future if and when we open up an urban reserve, because these, all this will apply to that.
1: There will certainly be an opportunity to, to talk about these things with the urban reserve. Um, the report that has been, we've had one public draft and the new public draft will be coming out. So we get this item back to the council. It really looks at uh, the kind of housing we have the sites we have for the kind of housing that is we have what we need and where it can go. And as part of, Unlocking the urban reserve or actually developing any undeveloped land plan for housing is going to be about getting a high quality design. Uh, That's something that um, I hear loud and clear from the council and from my boss, the city manager. So yes, we'll have those discussions in the time ahead. And Mr.
0: City Manager, do you have some comments on that?
3: So going back to one of the earlier comments that you raised, um, just an important piece of information in terms of um, the cost involved. So just by the very nature of where we sit on the side of Um, the county, for example, okay? Um, Fairfield on their side, they, um, their wastewater discharge goes a different direction. Ours and everything uh, east of us goes into the Delta. So we have different regulatory requirements right there. And as a result, we're required to have a water treatment plant and a wastewater treatment plant. Um, Others do not on the other side. And so a home builder in my experience is always looking for, you know, they have a minimum dollar value profit that they need to make. And so when you can build your $600,000 home in Vacaville and not have to pay that wastewater treatment fee um, that you do here um, in Fairfield, that's a difference. And so they're looking at those kinds of things. Now, is that a competitive disadvantage? It could be perceived as that, but we're trying to make up for that in other ways. But the fact of the matter is, is that we do have to have that, um, that fee to cover the cost of building a $150 million treatment facility. Uh, but well, as, as Ms. Morris mentioned though, this council um, took a big step and we're one of the few jurisdictions in the state that has actually put together a tiered fee for single family development now. So it does recognize that. And so as a result, uh, when we presented that, uh, uh, AB 1600 fee study to the council for approval, um, we do compete very well now. And so those are the kinds of things that we're looking at to make sure that while we still have to meet the minimum state requirements, we are still very competitive from a pricing standpoint in the region um, because we do recognize that it is a competitive uh, market um, and we want to make sure that we're,
4: we're in, in, in the game. So uh, just something to be aware of. Uh, Council Member Silva. <clears throat> Thank you. Um,
5: so uh, one request. Uh, a lot of information. Love the information. I need the slides before the meeting. Uh, so in these next ones, if I can get a printout so I can make notes um, and refer so we can have a more robust discussion for what these are intended for. I'd appreciate it. Um, <coughs> Got an email from uh, Chris Rico, uh, Arizona County economic development director. Uh, he was talking about in there, he was talking about uh, the need uh, for different types of housing. Um, that's, uh, you know, completely agree with that. Uh, one of the facts that was mentioned, or one of the statements that were mentioned was that uh, there's a more, there's an increased, increased demand for rentals. Um, the question I have is, so if individuals are paying, paying three, three, maybe up to $4,000 for a market rate rental currently, how many more rental units need to be built in order to increase the supply to meet the demand to drop
6: the costs?
1: I wish I could answer that question, Councilmember Silva, but I can't. Um, some of some of our more sophisticated apartment developers might be able to talk about that, about the absorption of new apartments into a community and how that might reduce rents. Um, I do want to say that, without, for example, um, a deed restriction that actually guarantees the rents are low in exchange for public investment there's really no guarantee that just to keep building more housing and the rents come down. But studies have shown that areas that just do not have enough apartments, the rents are really high. And as you start to get new apartments in, I'm sure they do come down. But We may have, it could be someone in the audience who's more expert in this than I am.
5: So would a decrease in uh, ownable homes increase the demand in rental units? Yes. So currently are there plans that are approved ready to dig in the dirt? but developers for whatever reasons are not developing.
1: We have a lot of approved housing projects, both single family and apartments that are not yet moving forward. And it's some of that really the financing piece is huge. Um, that's a huge piece of why projects, there's always a timing, a timing factor with that and being able to find the money to build.
5: So I, I, I always get confused in this because I hear, you know we say that there's a housing crisis and we need to build more well, the plan, everything's in the works, things are ready to go. At one point they felt that it pen- individuals uh, felt that it penciled out, but yet we're not building homes that individuals can own. Um, and so I, I guess I, I just, is something I'm, I'm still really ha- having a struggle understanding uh, when, when um, whoever it may be uh, says, okay, we need to increase the increase the supplies. So that way it meets the demand, so that way we decrease the cost. Um, but in, in other ways, another way to look at it is that unless individuals are gonna meet their, their profit margin, they're not gonna develop any project period. And if uh, we want more subsidized units available to meet whatever uh, slide it was that demonstrated a lot of professions that are under the median income that would be considered uh, low income or, or less, uh, they, they themselves are priced out of, out of the market. Uh, which is you know pretty much what you established. So I um, I guess in this sense and you know, you know, we're gonna talk last about inclusionary zoning, but even there, I have a question on, well it'd be interesting to see what what you all present, but if it's something that has to be subsidized through different methods that were recently discussed at the Cal Cities meeting, you know, uh, some of those were talking about a tax, uh, a, you know, a, a local general tax to help subsidize those units. Up to a certain amount of time, and I don't I don't think that's something that's sustainable or to put that onto middle class families. Um, and so it' just I don't know it's just in, in many ways it's, it's frustrating when uh, you know when we say, oh, we've got to keep building, keep building, and you know there's really no it doesn't seem like there's a clear uh, clear answer to all this. Um, I would also state that you know these the recent three three days at the Cal City's meeting, the topics is housing, homelessness, housing, homelessness, housing homelessness and then uh, receivership. <laughs> um, so uh, it doesn't sound like anybody quite has this figured out. Uh, the things, anything that somebody's champion, um, there was a talk from San Diego, there's a talk from LA, they championed the, hey, we built this subsidized you know, unit, 300 units or whatnot, whatever, whatever it respectively was. Um, well, and they were able to use ARP funds. Well, they also received one county received over 600,000, or sorry, one jurisdiction, over 600,000 in ARPA funds. Another one, um, almost 2 billion in ARPA funds. So um, yeah, that makes it a little easier uh, for these folks to, to develop something like that. Um,
3: Councilman Yeah. Can I, can I jump in real quick and, and respond to one of the things that you said? Would that be all right? Yeah. So with regards to um, bringing the price down by building more I think what we're observing, and and the data suggests, and what you know we're we're finding out from talking with folks, is that building more of the same product that we have out there, while we have lots of it on the books, um, is not necessarily the answer to lower the price. I think what we're suggesting is is that different product, missing middle, more of that along those lines, with a higher density, is going to be cheaper to build because you're getting more units on that smaller on that piece of property. And so that return for the developer is quicker as opposed to building more spaced out single traditional single family homes. And so therefore it's the price point is more affordable to a bigger target audience. And so that's why the term missing middle has come up more frequently that you're hearing now over the past couple of years. And so um, that's why we put a lot of emphasis on that in some of uh, the the newest uh, specific plan we worked on, for example, with the green tree plan workforce housing, missing middle. We also include that, that brand of product in our downtown specific plan, um, because those are the types of actions from our standpoint that are going to hopefully encourage building that new product type that doesn't really exist out there to meet that price point, okay? Because we do have thousands of traditional single family lots out there, and those are slowing down for a variety of different reasons and talking with the home builders. But the reality is, is that building those out, are I don't think are going to, to reduce the sales price um, going forward. I think it's gonna be more related to the product type that we're, we're building going forward. As far as the affordable housing and the subsidies, um, again, those are things that um, without help from um, other agencies, including the city, um, affordable housing developers can't do it on their own. They just can't. Um, it's too expensive to to build that um, and and get away with a successful project. And so traditionally, uh, it's been a combination of of uh, investments, and we've brought those to the council in the past. Where, you know, there's a grant from STA MTC, um, and with that, they're eligible to go out and go apply for uh, state tax credits and other types of funding. Um, and that's where having a, a an approved housing element is critical because if you don't have that, you don't get in line for, for those subsidies. And so, um, we're going to have to have that conversation and that's why we're presenting that information for you at our, at our next meeting. And so we'll be anxious to hear your feedback on that, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share that with you.
4: Yeah.
5: I, I think, I mean, the other reality is that if any individuals waiting for, um, the state or, or local government to provide a solution to their housing needs. Um, and it's going to come at a subsidized rate. I, I, based on what I've seen, it's, it's, it's nothing, nothing that I've seen out there is sustainable for the duration of their life. So I think part of the other side of the story is I think that there needs to be a discussion with individuals, um, particularly our youth, on the, the importance of a quality education, the importance of uh, having skills to be able to move up to put themselves in positions, to be able to earn a decent income, to live, um, to live and create and sustain the quality of life that they seek. Um, and it's my hopes that we as you know, a, city, a city council and a community, um, we provide a certain identity. Uh, I think a lot of the feedback that we have throughout the city and the apprehension about continued growth, you know, the impact of schools, and impact of roads, um, or not seeing different needs that, that they are passionate about being met, um, I, I think part of that, uh, part of that story, um, part of that story is really just, it, it's not so much that, uh, I don't feel it's truly that so much that it's what we're growing is how we are growing. And so uh, I know it's not necessarily maybe for today, I know it's a more detailed discussion, but you mentioned a bit about different types of developments and how it ties into existing neighborhoods and whatever amenities uh, that may provide uh, I think if you know, the, the way the state's going is pushing, putting a lot more pressure uh, for more high density. Um, the only challenge with high density is that if you don't have access to amenities then it's forcing you to commute, it's forcing you um, to go to, to different areas. And so uh, as we continue to develop or redevelop uh, certain infill, uh, how do we make sure that, I'm curious to see how we uh, ensure or provide an opportunity more so for the economic development component Uh, to where you have uh, required different amenities within these high density uh, developments. Um, The one question I wanna, uh, even if it's another topic that's coming up is about uh, the rent burden concept. So I've heard from different folks, uh, all different types of professions about concern of increased rent. So the challenge with that is that the more money that they have tied up into a rent or a a mortgage, um, that's well above 30%, so let's say 50, 60%. Um, that just, that limits their ability to reinvest back in the community. Is that pretty, is that true?
1: That is the gist yeah. of it, yes.
5: And so um, some things that come up, and this goes for small business, uh, not property owners, but small business owners that are renting, um, and even uh, different renters themselves is uh, looking at different ways to help mitigate that. I know it's extremely controversial topic, but... Uh, What ways are there to protect uh, current residents and and whatever uh, on how we're developing, um, sorry, how our policies are encouraging different developments and how those uh, have uh, folks who can afford the market that our current workforce can't?
1: That's a great question, Councilman Silva. And I know that um, I believe you were here last night at the planning commission study session on the housing element. There's a whole set of policies and programs that are actually programs that are in the draft housing element that require the city to set up um, regulations and systems for ensuring that people in existing housing are not displaced when new things perhaps new infill housing, new, exciting housing is happening, Uh, but that's through the new requirement that the city must affirmatively further fair housing that are some of our 40 housing programs, many of them new touch on that very issue of ensuring that people are not displaced. Um, That's that's addressed that way.
5: Um, Yeah, that's it. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody.
0: Vice Mayor Wiley.
2: Thank you for the information, particularly the beginning, just kind of summarizing where Vacaville is and how things have changed. And so, just a couple observations. You know, when you talked about the boom and permits during the '60s, and it looked like much a higher spike. I wasn't in Vacaville then, but it seems like a lot of the house product at that time was, you know, really built. It is at a much different standard and much smaller. And So I think you could build it faster for one thing. But the other thing is, I I think there's more um, like little condominium areas that we had during that time that I've seen some around town, like around Sierra Vista and some other places, which I didn't really know were there until I was looking at the housing types in different places and even some downtown. And in my neighborhood, like over by Cambridge, there's that one sort of condominium place and that's home ownership as well. And it seems like that product hasn't been built much at all lately since that time. And what's what's the reason for that? I mean, we don't have developers wanting to build it, or are there other things that have influenced that? Because I think that's the missing middle that we're kind of looking for.
1: Uh, thank you, Councilmember Wiley or Vice Mayor Wiley. I um, yes, the, the condominiums and townhouses, owned or rented, are perfect examples of missing middle housing. Um, condominium construction has really been slow um, in all parts of California, except for the most urban parts. A lot of it due to just the construction liability um, issue. The developer builds it and they're sued by the homeowners a very short period of time after that. It costs a lot of money. So a lot of the resistance to particularly individually owned townhouses and condos comes from that background. Um, that's a lot of the preference for even just a slightly detached single-family home um, gets out of that realm of it having that shared ownership and getting into that that, that liability realm. But condominiums have been tough to get new ones. There still are some people, some builders building them in some places, um, but that form, that lower-scale form, smaller smaller units clustered together, uh, maybe they're not attached, uh, that is something that is happening elsewhere. Um, it's, it's a condominium, but it doesn't quite have the same issues.
2: All right, because um, I know some teachers have you know bought that as their first home and then been able to then move when they have a family or something. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's not available when you're paying rent all the time, because you're not saving anything, you're spending it all. So that was one question. What can we do maybe to get more condominiums or, or that kind of shared housing, which I know we're looking at? Another concern, I know that this was not your words, but it's what you said, that if cities aren't figuring out what to do, then the state's going to figure it out. But it doesn't appear to me that anything the state is doing has helped housing because that cost of affordable housing is going up so much that no one can build it. And so um, what, what's your comment on that observation that states are going to do it if cities don't?
1: Well, I think the way that that's summarized on that slide, I like it because it is, it seems to be the prevalent attitude as articulated even through like the legislative intent behind SB 330. The state has a housing crisis. Cities and counties aren't building housing. We're gonna step in and, and, and make people build housing. Um, so that's a real thing. On the, the question you have about um, producing, I'm gonna say subsidized affordable housing, when the state disbanded redevelopment redevelopment was the largest funding source in this state for affordable housing. It created so much affordable housing. And then they've really yet to provide anything close to even anything approximating a funding source like redevelopment. Um, I mean, that's the whole carrot and the stick thing. I, I feel like as the cities were being hit with a stick um, and they're not actually providing what would, be, what would make affordable housing happen, which is that um, actual money to go make it happen. But I think that's, that's the tough situation that most cities are in with affordable housing. And unless and until you come up with a local funding source, and that is one of our draft housing programs, is to look for a local funding source. Um, you don't have a pot of money to you know, leverage with state grants and with other funds to produce affordable housing.
2: And when we talked about housing early on, you also said, you know, we need all kinds of housing. And when we have the big businesses come in, we need executive housing and we need missing middle and we need affordable housing. And with the executive housing, you know, if we don't have it, then they have to go elsewhere. But just the thing is, my observation, executive housing, if we don't have it, they have the option. They go elsewhere and they they still have a house with lower income. If we they don't have that choice. It's not like, oh, I don't like that one. So I'm going to take this one. So So it's not exactly, it is housing for everyone, but housing impacts so many families so much differently. If you don't have a place to be, you can't get your kids to school and you can't go to work and and all that. So I want to keep looking at ways we can find more affordable housing for people. Um, And then will you also answer just, you said planned growth ordinances are now illegal. So will you explain that?
1: Um, the city uh, city of Vacaville, like many cities um, in Northern California especially, um, set up something called like a housing allocation plan. And so essentially our local ordinance said that every year only a certain number of building permits were going to get issued. And so it basically capped the number of building permits that were issued. And then by setting up the ordinance, there was a fairly complicated and rigorous um, monitoring process that the city did. Basically every time a building is going to be issued, do you have an allocation or not? So that that approach toward like having an ordinance that says it limits growth to a certain number of units is definitely not allowed by state law. Um, our plan growth ordinance was um, suspended a few years ago, and it, it's still on our books, but it's in currently in a suspended state. And we have a housing program that says it we will we'll get rid of it uh, because again, it doesn't comport with state law.
2: And then the last comment. Uh, thank you, city manager, for to talk about the tiered system. I mean, I. I voted for that. I think that's good because we can't charge the same rates for all that and that should help things. Um, Another thing that I wish we could be on the cutting edge and say, well, we're one of the first people that do that is finding a way to keep seniors in their home by having the people who need a home partner up with that and then be able to have shared housing. And so you've got seniors in a house with other people sharing the house, um, not just living alone and then having other people out of, town, because I know seniors who would like to downsize, but you can't buy a smaller house for less money. So that is an option. But San Diego has a real successful program. And I know they're a lot bigger than we are. But if we could just continue to think along those lines, what can we do to help seniors stay in their house and find provide housing for others? So thanks. Oh, I have one more thing, though. <laughs> On that one chart that you showed, the planned program, planned projects, I mean, we have a lot of planned projects and oftentimes between the plan and the end product, things change. And like the one on California Drive, Montessa, I mean, it shows us 40, 59 houses and it remains to be seen whether that will be 59 houses or 180 units. So I just wanted to comment on the fact that just because it's planned as one thing, it doesn't always stay that thing. So those are my comments.
7: Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, uh, thank you for the presentation. Yeah, was at the planning commission meeting, so I got a little bit of a preview of what's coming next week. But uh, the numbers looked a little bit different for the for the pipeline homes. I think it's like from one last night, it was showing like over five thousand above moderate homes coming in. How did we get to the such a large disparity between what was planned for, like the arena numbers, to being so many per? pipeline homes versus being so under where we need to be for the low and very low income.
1: Uh, last night's um, focused on our planning for the next housing cycle. So the chart I'm showing here to this evening was about what we've produced over the, the fifth housing cycle, the last eight years. But the chart that will this council will see next week Um, It's about the new arena that we've been assigned and it's about how our site inventory, which is where we identify the sites, how it adds up to a a number of housing units that's well above the requirement. And as I explained to the Planning Commission, it's the intent behind it, and I'll have our housing consultant with us too to help explain, is not to say that we're gonna build way more than the state is asking us to, but it's to provide a buffer in case some of the sites we're showing as housing sites do not ultimately become housing sites that we don't have to go back through a state certification process. So that is the difference between those charts is the, this is the past and the chart you saw last night is, is the future.
7: Okay, um, and with that, how does the inclusionary zoning that we've been talking about play into those numbers? Because I know if they are planning to develop the above moderate homes, I mean, just statistically speaking the amount of homes that they have versus the amount of ones that are pipeline to be above moderate, it just doesn't pan out because people are going to be needing housing or more of the workforce housing. And uh, what we were presented a few different times, 80% of our our residents commute outside. And so kind of like what you brought up earlier was the rent burdening, but it's also gas because gas prices tripled in price over the last few years. Um, So kind of lost my train of thought there, but um, yeah, how does that, how, how do we fix that number? Because if they're just planning a moderate, moderate housing, how do we try to meet those marina numbers? I know it's just planned housing for any. It's not that we have to build those. We just have to plan for them, but how do we get those if all they want to build is a modern and above moderate homes?
1: Um, I want to be careful to not, we're not going to talk about the inclusionary zoning presentation yeah. next, I don't have it prepared, but just yeah. in general, through an inclusionary zoning or housing program, um, the council could decide that developers of new housing have to include deed restricted affordable units in their development, or give them the option of paying an in lieu fee. And then that in lieu fee can be the money that starts to actually subsidize the deed restricted affordable. And it's actually not one or the other, it can also be a hybrid. But um, at the study session on May 9th, I will walk the council through what the considerations are, how these, how these programs work. Um, so you can start having that conversation about what you think might be the best solution for Vacaville.
7: Then um, I don't go by the state's like optimism on housing being 30% of your, I don't know why they based off of pre-tax income because a lot of that money is not actually usable because they take that money. Um, is, is there anything we can do like from the city about Uh, Different landlords renting properties. I know I have a few friends that have been looking at apartments and different apartment complexes are requiring three or even four times the amount of rent and salary. Where, yeah, to get a two bedroom apartment for $2,200, they're expecting them to make $8,800 a month, which is most people don't make that amount of money. So, is there anything we can do as a city by? not necessarily rent controlling, but limiting the amount that they're requiring the person to have to, to be able to rent. Because there's a lot of rentals actually in the city right now. This is that they're not renting them out because of those types of restrictions.
1: Uh, I know that Emily Cantu, our housing community services director is here. And she may have some other thoughts, but um, really the city does not have control over the amount of money a private party requires for deposit or what their income requirements are. But what we do have, Responsibility to do, and again, I'll go, it's in our existing housing elements, and our new one is ensuring that. everyone in Vacaville is complying with fair housing. We're not the fair housing police. We are not going out there and monitoring that, but we are required to um, implement programs and education, just like the seminar that happened not that long ago, to make sure people in our community are aware of what it looks like when you're being discriminated against um, or being treated differently. So it doesn't get at your um, concern about people setting their deposits really high. I don't think we have much to do with that. We are tasked through in particular, the affirmatively furthering fair housing lens of our current housing element of setting up programs and educational tools and other things to ensure that it's not a discriminatory practice.
7: Yeah, and I'm not necessarily worried about like the deposits, about like income that they're requiring, which far exceeds what I I think should be acceptable for them to rent a $2,000 or $2,200 a month apartment, because those aren't even nicer apartments in town these days. And it's like, if somebody's making that amount of money, they're probably not going to be renting those apartments anyways, but unfortunately that's what's left. Um, and then my last uh, topic I wanted to get on was the military housing. I know there are some areas that we're looking at for military housing within the city. Um, I think we need to partner with the base and as well as lending uh, places. Cause I know the, speaking for myself, when I was shopping around for a house, the, the VA has not caught up with California prices. And so the limit that you see for a lot of VA loans, you usually have to jump into the jumbo VA loan where it does require down payment at that point. And then, or if you're looking at the BAH from airmen on base, if you have like a lower enlisted person who technically qualifies for subsidized housing based off the amount they make and active duty, a lot of times, if it is a family, they're on a single income because a lot of military spouses don't have full-time jobs. Um, and so, yeah, with the rents they are now, it's like even you get an E-5 with, that's married has a couple kids, a four-person four household, they wouldn't even qualify by that three or four times a month uh, income qualification to rent in a two-bedroom apartment here in town. So I think trying to partner at least the city working with somebody that can build military housing that'll restrict it to BAH levels or what or housing that qualifies for VA loans. Uh, thank you. Council Member
8: Stockton. Yes, thank you for the presentation. A lot of good information, great comments from my colleagues. Um, just wanna reiterate what's been said. It's it's frustrating to have a lot of these demands put on us that we have very little control over. Um, but I am curious to know a couple things. Uh, the first is how often are we meeting with developers or providing opportunities for developers to meet with the city to identify maybe some of the obstacles or hurdles or things that they're currently facing, like, you know, not over a span of time, but like almost like immediate pressing needs that are preventing them from being able to, you know, move forward on some of the projects that are getting approved.
1: Uh, that, um, Council Member Stockton happens frequently. Um, one of the biggest functions that, uh, the roles that I play for the city with, along with my, God, my planning team, my building team, is that we are regularly um, being asked to meet with a developer with, some some snag or some hurdle related to their approved plan or they're they're trying to solve some issue of they have an approved project but we're really um, that's a very frequent thing and so like weekly it's more it's just on an appointment basis if i mean i would say anyone is welcome to come to my department to talk to us about things but we have regular just it's a recurring theme of meeting with developers in our department um and
8: are council members allowed to attend those meetings
1: this is more, these are more just like the meetings that someone's coming in to talk to a staff member. So it's not typical to have um, elected or appointed officials there, but I mean, it's not, we, there are times when staff and developers are meeting and there is a councilman or two present. Or somebody
2: like yeah.
8: that. Okay. Um, the, the other concern that I have with the affordable housing stuff that's coming down from the state, and I don't know what we can do about it until we address the objective standards that this council has been pretty pretty straightforward about wanting to get to um, you know, with some of the stuff that's coming down with the ADUs and junior ADUs, all of these things that maybe in metropolitan cities, huge places like we've talked about San Diego or San Francisco could be, could in, can incentivize, could incentivize the uh, people to, you know, rent these properties. They're still making them unaffordable. And so council member Silva, to his credit has talked a lot about, you know, how do we, how do we provide housing opportunities for people that grow up in Vacaville to be able to live in Vacaville And it's pretty clear based upon the slide that you showed before that in single income households, it's impossible. Um, And so it really shows um, kind of the the power of of multi-earners within the same household to be able to afford to live here, which means you really want to have to live. You really want to live in Vacaville if you're going to to those lengths to spend that kind of money to live here. Are there any ways that we can incentivize companies to partner with developers or to develop their own properties for their employees to live on, like live within those housing tracks or homes? Like, is that another avenue that we can explore where if some of these biotech companies are coming and they know they're gonna have 500 employees with families and they can work with or incentivize um, the builder to build what they need for their people to live here? Is that something that, We have the authority to do, or can we work with them on something like that?
1: If the council wishes to, you know, you can identify industries that we want to target or, and target in a positive way to to assist with housing. You can, and there actually is a housing element policy that talks about employee housing, which we'll talk about next week. So it's out there, but there, there are scenarios where cities, um, I don't know if it's, it's anything different though than working on any kind of development are actually working on projects that are driven by an employer who's recognizing the high cost of housing and the need for employee housing. And, and there are those projects out there oh, teacher, teacher housing, uh, tourist oriented housing for tourist tourism. Um, yeah. There's some examples out there. Council I'm just talking.
8: curious if it would yeah. provide, you know, opportunities for us to maybe um, incentivize the, you know, portions of, of reduced taxes for, for the company to, as long as they have, you know, these homes, you know, that are set aside for their people. Um, the other question that I have is when do we anticipate that we'll be able to see tangible data related to the decision that we made about the sliding scale for the size of the building, the size of the uh, homes or units that are being built? When do you think we'll be able to see whether or not that policy that we enacted is actually helping
1: Thank you for that question, Councilman Stockton. So right now, um, since last fall, we've actually been implementing in the residential building permit uh, process, a hybrid fee schedule. So um, developers, because we've been transitioning to the new fees, like the residential goes fully into effect this June, we've given developers the option of choosing whether they wanna use the existing fee for a development or the new fee, they can literally choose by category. I would say, I think we've gotten some more building permits um, pulled for some single family on the east side of town, especially because of that program. But I think how we'll see it is by looking at our monthly building permit activity and how it changes as the fees go fully into effect in the the summertime. I also think we'll see it when we look at our comparators. If we we notice with our hybrid fees that we, we suddenly have more activity or on more pace with other cities that have more permits, we're gonna see that too. I just cannot wait to have that data because we'll be tracking that data by the, how many houses, what sizes, and we'll be able to come back to the council and be able to share with you um, how that has affected housing development.
8: Okay. Um, while we're talking about sliding scales, the other sliding scale that I'm interested in wondering if we could talk about as a council for you know, a policy decision is whether we, you know, a lot of these projects, we approve them and it's like 10 years and they attack on another 10 years before you know, it 30 years. We're building stuff now from when I was in middle school and it, it gets a little crazy. Is there a way that we can implement, you know, a policy that incentivizes or decreases the fees, you know, or, you know, when they, if they build right away versus waiting 10 years or whatever and, and dragging these things out because it seems like the longer they wait, the less control we have. And so, you know, is there a way that we can...
1: And there's different ways to do that. I would say the best tool that the city has is the development agreement, because in a development agreement, you can articulate the timing of when things need to happen and you can offer, okay, if you build by this date, these are the, the rules of the road, so to speak. And if it passes, so yes, I think the development agreement is the tool you're looking for. Um, if that becomes an in interest of the council um, to incentivize, that is a tool that we might be able to use to to your advantage.
8: And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about was I, I agree with council Member Silva's comments about having the slides ahead of time. I think it would be beneficial for me, but also for the public. Um, there's a lot of great information in there that is you know, awesome to really take the time and look at ahead of time, especially when there's like 55 slides or 57 or whatever. But thank you for the presentation. I'm really excited to hear, about, uh, hear the comments from the people that are in the audience as well.
0: Yes, thank you. At this time, I'm gonna open it up to the public for comment. Those wishing to come forward on this item, please come up to the podium. Good
9: evening, Alicia Minion. Thank you for the presentation, all the great questions. Um, so I was wondering if, if staff has any additional uh, supporting data to Uh, to explain the 108,000 median household income that, I thought that was high. And I'm wondering if that is maybe more of an artificial number because the new homes that are being built, I mean, is it possible that the people buying them are from out of the area? I mean, they could be like me, Um, my job is in San Francisco. I can't get that job here in Vacaville, doesn't exist. So I'm wondering if somehow this new housing stock we're building, it's drawing people with jobs out of the area and it's artificially inflating our median household income. I'm wondering, what, what is the median household income for people that actually live here and work here? I don't know how some way maybe we can get that data. Um, and then, I was thinking about the comment about veteran housing. So in Southtown off Vanden Road, there was a large lot that was donated to the city. And I think it was early 2019 where um, an exclusive negotiating rights agreement was entered into with, I think it was CTY, the same developer who's supposed to build something by the the bus station on Allison. so it's been many years, I haven't heard any activity. And I'm wondering if we're gonna build affordable housing, I mean, is it smart to enter into these exclusive arrangements for such a long-term with one developer and they don't deliver? So going along the lines with Councilman Stockton's, you know, the, the, the issue brought up where we somehow we approve these projects, decades go by, even with a development agreement. Decades go by with no construction. Well, I lived in Pleasant Hill, that as soon as they underwrote a project, they had to build within five years. If you don't build in five years, you have to start over again. And my concern is the land value in a way could be, could be inflated. I mean, the price could be going up because you're basically proving the entitlements on land. It increases the value of that land and, they don't, and the developer doesn't have to do anything. So I think uh, there's, I don't know if there's something that could be done about that. And then also the fact that there's a lot of people may work to find work, they're leaving the city, or maybe there's people coming in because they don't want to live here. I think we have to make this place before you start thinking of growing it, we have to have a balance in this development. We need the appropriate amount of schools. We need parks, trails. We need something to attract the people to want to stay. I think when you have those things, proper infrastructure, roads, schools, parks, nice stores, things like that, then start thinking about building. Because right now, the way it is, we don't have enough of those things. Yeah, and I have other points, but I think my time is up, right? Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you you for those comments. Uh, No doubt, a comprehensive approach to housing in the community as it's
10: growing is going to be important. So good evening. Hey mayor, council members, my name is Andre Casanova. I'm a union rep, for local 180. Uh, I'm just here to try to help out the citizens here who's, who's working, who do construction and who have to commute hours to other projects. just like the ones we are discussing here, like the San Mateo, where they where their city council members have implied, have implemented a strong language and they build so that when developers and contractors build in their neighborhood, that they hire locally. They hire some form of an apprenticeship with prevailing wage, some type of health care. So that our guys who, who live here doesn't have to drive to San Mateo, who work on similar projects just like this one. So often these developers move into these neighborhoods and these jobs are like a crime scene. I mean they have they exploit their workers, pay very little, no health benefits, and we could put we could make we could make that come to an end. This law, this law is being passed now to stop that, this type spot from happening now. So why not we put putting some type of language that when these developers come into this community, they don't exploit their workers. They don't exploit our community so that our young kids could come in as an apprentice and get nice career jobs That were there so that they could be able to afford to buy these homes that they get to work on. We should not exploit our citizens but the developers. So with that, I would like to say thank you for listening.
4: Thank you.
11: Wendy Brecken and um, in response to Jason Roberts question about maybe something could be done to have a lower, I guess, uh, salary requirement and uh, lower deposits. I'm not sure, but couldn't you do um, something with a building permit, condition the bu- building permit so that you know, maybe a certain percentage of income is required and not more than a certain percentage of income is required. I mean, that's my question. Um, also with the, the planned growth um, ordinance that was part of, um, still is, I guess, part of the regulations. Um, the The basic purpose of that was to have resources, enough resources, infrastructure, parks, schools, police, fire, whatever to um, you know have a high quality community. So um, just because maybe it is illegal, I'm not sure it is um, to have allocations of permits, but um, there's still the underlying purpose of um, and I I guess Alicia had brought that up, that you need to have planned communities. You don't throw out planning completely and not plan your communities and just have growth, 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 single family development or apartments forever. Um, we have that here and it's not going so well. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of competition with this hurrah, hurrah, let's more growth, more growth. Yes, are arena numbers, but the responsibility, um, the community is placing their trust in you to um, do this right and have good planning and safe roads and not create traffic chaos and uh, et cetera. You hear me? Thank you.
4: Thank you. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, John
12: Evaye, uh, City Council members, John Evaye, um, citizen of Vacaville, but I'm coming on uh, in my role as the chairman of the Travis Regional Armed Forces Committee, uh, the community group that we do a lot of community work in supporting the airmen and the mission out of the Travis Air Force Base. I just, first of all, want to applaud the council for talking and including uh, the issues of housing for the, the military and including the military in that calculation, Ms. Morris. Um, that's very important. I do know that the base is working towards getting you guys some, I'll say, some tangible data that would help support what the need looks like for the men and women as they arrive to Travis Air Force Base. When it comes in terms of housing, uh, I will say uh, we know from the uh, numbers of young uh, individuals, or not just young individuals, any individuals that arrive to Travis Air Force Base, it's between 90 to 150 new arrivals to Travis Air Force Base every month. So that's between 1,000 to maybe 1,800 new arrivals a year into Travis Air Force Base. Of course, some of those members are PCSing away. We do have people leaving, but those new arrivals, they need homes. And I'll just, I'll just remind, of course, you guys know this, they don't have a choice where they're living or where they're coming to. They're, they get assigned to Travis Air Force Base, so they have to come here to live and to do their job uh, serving our country. Um, Vacaville tends to be the community of first choice. Um, Now, I would say that that obviously um, comes with a a burden of being able to find a home, right? And I'm not even saying affordable housing, I'm just saying find a place. Um, An interesting uh, element of that situation is the airmen at at Travis Air Force Base, they receive a basic housing allowance, right? Basic allowance for housing, BAH, that's on top of their base pay. The youngest airman, the most young airman in E-1 at the lowest level without a family, receives 23, uh, I'm sorry, 2,300, almost $2,400 on top of their pay for their housing allowance. So it's $2,382 that is without dependents, without a family. Um, when they have a family, it goes up to 29, uh, almost, uh, well, $2,988, that's when they have a family. Um, all the way up to the most senior, I'll say E9 uh, enlisted person with the family is $3,400, just slightly over $3,400. That's on top of their base pay um, that they get to live off base here in our community. Um, so again, I'm not talking about affordable housing. I'm just talking about being able to find a place. Um, I'm not saying they get paid a great amount, but uh, they can afford housing if they're, if it's available. Um, and the base does not have the data to be able to say um, when they arrive and they couldn't find a home in the area how far they had to move away or where they had to go to and I'll just say again as I close uh, I appreciate you taking on the um, including the needs for Travis air force base and housing in your your discussion and considering this very important thank you for your time
4: thank you
0: yes uh If you could you could come back up here. I think there's a question here. Uh, Councilmember Silva has All
5: right, uh, two questions. One, um, is, it, uh, is there opportunity for our council members to get a tour of the existing housing on base? Absolutely. I don't control that, but I can help you do that. And then uh, number two. Um, so this came up in a private conversation. So something that little guy on, tell me, Mike, don't say this publicly, okay. but, <coughs> but I'm going see. to. So here we go. Um, so... Uh, other places with the, the housing allowance, does that typically usually help them meet 100% of
12: the cost of housing, uh, other other bases, other areas? It is the... not intended to cover the entire cost of housing, but a, a military member has a choice of how they use that house, how they use that benefit. Some young airmen will move two airmen into one place and they will they still receive the full benefit. Mm. Uh, but is the intention is not to cover the entire cost of housing. But again, airmen have a choice of where they live and the lifestyle they and the, and the dwelling that they. choose
5: What to live percentage in. is it intended to cover? I do not have that off the top of my head. All right. So I guess my this is what I'll, I'll reframe it and I'll reframe it. Uh, so my concern is that the market in itself may be exploiting or active military because they have uh, the, um, the the BAH and so because uh, they know that they have that voucher and they can afford additional costs that they're maximizing
12: their the their rates uh, yes sir if I may uh, it is not unusual for landlords to adjust what they're asking for for rent based on BAH of the local of the local military base it is not unusual that happens in a lot of places across the country that land because that's public public information how much the airmen at Travis Air Force Base will receive uh, is public information and landlords have access to that, just like they do all over the world. I will say, on the BAH at Travis, it's the fourth highest in our nation. Well, um, kind of uh, quietly infuriates me. And sorry to hear that, but uh, thank you
0: for answering the questions. There's still another question for you, Vice Mayor Wiley.
2: Hello. And I also serve on the TRAF Committee. I really enjoy those conversations that we talk about housing. And at one of them, the person from the base talked about the need for more rental housing. So I just wanted to say, if anyone knows anyone who's looking to rent the house, uh, see if we can get that available for military people as well. But my question for you is, um, do you have any notion of how many military people purchase a house in Vacaville versus rent? Because I know. In District 6, there are quite a few military people who buy a house or they bought the house last time they were on Travis. So is that information available or do you have any fuel for that?
12: Again, um, that would come from the military housing office on Travis Air Force Base. I don't have that information on that, that statistic, um, but you are correct. And I will say um, once they arrive here and they realize how difficult it is rent, uh, most of them go down the path of purchasing a home because it's a little bit easier actually to purchase the home and then they hold on to that when they PCS when they leave uh, as a rental property.
2: Because when I was walking through the models at Villages Abandon or whatever it is on Leisure Town Road he was saying oh you know all these are sold and I said oh they are and he said yeah military had bought a great deal of those so I was surprised but it is you know right by the back gate basically so. Yes ma'am. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you sir. wishing to speak? Good evening. Council members, thank you very much. My name is Ed Rappasard.
6: I'm a real estate broker as well as a, a veteran. Um, I'm gonna talk to you today about, from a perspective of a new home sales or sales on their resale uh, specifically. As of our Bay Area Real Estate Information Services, our multiple listing service. Currently in Backville, we have 82 properties active or coming soon on the market right now. This is not anything more than, in my opinion, a supply and demand issue on there. We have properties from 250,000 to 3.2 million. This includes the city proper as well as the unincorporated area, the country property. Uh, Various conditions of that. We have one month of inventory. That means if property stopped coming on the market today, we would empty our market within one month. A normal healthy market is somewhere between three to five to six months of inventory. We haven't seen that in quite some time. On the super sellers market. And there are receiving multiple offers on properties. Um, so something that we should all consider. Um, our average price per square foot is 322 our median price is 599. And actually our average sold is 599,000. Um, our absorption rate is 102%, almost 103%. As we look at this picture, I think it's important that we take into account the traffic, the public safety, our education, and our lifestyle that we want as, um, for our city. And I, I don't envy uh, your situation where you have to set this policy for our city. You have a tough job, and uh, I think we have the right people in place for it. Um, as far as uh, Council Member Roberts, uh, the, the VA loan is actually has changed quite a bit. They have um, reduced the higher end limits, and I think Council Member Richie can, um, can, can talk to that. Uh, but there, it is probably the best loan at least in my uh, opinion, um, out there, and it's something that we could and should um, seek uh, the military personnel. Other than that, um, oh, the other thing is the tax rates. So when we start talking about uh, for resale properties, we usually factor 1.25% is the way we would factor in a tax base on there. When we're talking about the new construction, we're often above 1.5%, 1.62%, 1.75%. In Fairfield, I um, factor 1.89%. That's a significant sum that does not go away. That's not, or it's in addition to your base uh, principal and interest payment. That's a significant um, sum. And I'll let you go from there. I know I have a couple of questions for you. Can you just complete that thought on the tax? Well, the, the taxes, um, and it can be packaged in a lot of different ways, tax assessments, Melarus, HOA's, condo associations. Um, and that's something that is factored in on top of whatever it is. So someone may qualify for a loan at say 500,000, but if it's a condo, there may be a six or five, six, $700 uh, association fee attached to that. In addition, if we're talking something separate for the, the, um, tax assessments. um, There are the property taxes on there. The property taxes are some of our um, for city streets, for lighting, for police and fire, for the uh, parks, those types of um, pieces. Does that make sense, Mr. Mayor? I
0: did have a question for you that was, uh, whether you were going to speak or not, I was not sure, but. I remember asking you a question in the falls. It's like, if we could really understand where people are coming from. I've often heard members of this, the previous council in in conversations to say, we would like to build homes for our kids. And I mean, I've had kids that moved out because there were no homes. It's it's a little inventory. Where are they coming from? Because I've also met several people along the way that said, well, we were priced out of the Bay Area. We sold for cash, came here paid cash, and we love Acoville, and so we we have a safe community, and we have a a community and a culture that is inviting, and so with that, you're you're messaging a supply and demand, but it seems like whatever we're building, as I've often said, you can't unbuild what you build. We need affordable housing, uppercase, lowercase, both. We need executive housing because we're trying to reach the biomanufacturing executives that are going to come here, and if they're not going to live here, then this is going to impact our industry. But can you give an estimation of, of I don't know if, it, if it's completely accurate. And I heard a question, how many people are coming from outside the area when all of a sudden these new developments are coming up?
6: Have any idea or thoughts on that? Mr. Mayor, I don't, I don't know that specific answer. I can tell you that we receive a lot of requests from uh, the South and East Bay, um, into this specific area. Um, But I don't have any quantifiable number to to tell you that. I do think that when you sell a three bedroom home for for greater than a million dollars and you come into and buy a five
4: or $600,000 home, that looks a lot more uh, digestible. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? All right, with that, I'm gonna close.
0: Public comment of this um, presentation and bring it back for some final thoughts. Councilmember Ritchie.
13: Uh, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your presentation. I really don't have any questions, um, but I've more have been a good listener and so kind of want to respond to uh, some of the questions. Um, order, it's kind of hard to chronological order, but um, so was, thank you so much for approaching the podium, uh, Ed. I really appreciate that. Um, that's a real problem. That's really how you break property taxes up as the secured and unsecured property taxes, two portions. Every time we vote for something, a bond, a measure, lamp, light district, those are your unsecured. Your security like, is your, your base prop, prop tax rate of 1%, or past that's an adjustment. So that, that's, that will become an issue as we develop in California, in our county, we gotta face the fact that, hey, um, like Melarus is an unsecured fee. Um, HOA's, home Associations, it's interesting, those are not a unsecured fee. That's, that's another fee, the cost of ownership. That's the hard part about developing um, condos now because it's not, it doesn't pencil out the, the key word. Um, we had the question about the VA. I'll try to work in reverse. Um, the VA has done a lot of changes. It's my fourth president I'm gonna call it a fourth presentation, but um, the VA has done a lot of presentations. A lot got swept under the rug with the last two years of COVID. Um, it's like the Blue Water Act. It'll so the old days, every county 58 counties in California you had to have a loan limit, and the loan limit was set to VA that if you want to buy above that 25% of that difference, you had to pay out of pocket. Um, they removed that, so now you have veterans that can buy 100% of the VA loan limit for the county. Well, they raised it, so now it's two million dollars. So it comes a problem. so, you can buy, so it's at $2 million harms in financing. So you don't have the issue of like, oh, they they gap financing and that's gone. Um, But the affordability of homes is a real feature. Like I was trying to find a way to tie in and you did a great job. Like it's easier to buy sometimes than rent. You know, it's hard to figure out how can we work with developers as a city? What role can we, what lines can we not cross and blur where the city's telling private, Developers, how to run their business. We got to figure out how we incentivize them, educate them to maybe take some steps to make living in Vacaville more affordable. You know, it's the, the difference. The problem we see is, you know, we can tie maybe the major developers of condo of, of our, our projects in Vacaville to kind of the same standards and guidelines of the GSEs, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD. So you can buy a house. And the way they do the ratios should kind of be the same way that someone is affording rent. If you want to model people to be able to rent in Vacaville, afford rent, qualify for rent with the goal intention to move to home ownership, then we should find a way to model renting in Vacaville the same way as home ownership. If you go into a, a bank institution and apply for a VA mortgage, I think it's too high. They'll, they'll allow you to use 80% of in your gross income to qualify. It's a lot. So there's a high proportion of everyone's bought a home in the last five, 10 years that are above 30%. So that number is very damaging to me. The fact that they actually think debt burden for rent and mortgages is high, we're approving everybody above 30% because of the issues of housing, because issues of cost. So for them to set a bar that low, to me, that was a big concern when I heard that, because I know the numbers, you can get the numbers through HUD, Humda, the Home War Disclosure Act. It's a lot of data the government um, gets. You can know where people are coming from. When they buy a house in Vacaville, is you look at their previous residence. So there's a lot of ways we can get data to figure out where they're coming from, at what price point do they afford to move to Vacaville, what type of job they had before they came here, because that data has all been collected. Um, I really wish, you know, if we found a way to model renting to back, to owning, we got to realize we can't, can't penalize builders and, co- and owners of these large car complexes. So if we're going to say, hey, you need to lower your ratios. Five times is crazy. If someone walks in and they're allowed to use 45% of their monthly income to qualify, if they have good credit history, let them rent. But we can't penalize them if they go to evict the same way, if you miss a mortgage payment, you go in a notice of sale and notice of foreclosure. So the problem is if they are like, hey, you want us to make it easy for people to rent, but it's harder to enforce the problems. That's a problem. So we need to make sure that if we're gonna make renting easier and Vacaville, we got to align home ownership guidelines, paying on time, timely payment. And if you don't, there's a penalty to, hey, it will make it easier to live in Vacaville, we'll reside in rent with the same flow chart to get you kind of trained and modeled to be an owner. But if you mess up, it's the same guidelines. We'll give you notes on 30 days and we'll start the process of eviction. Like So that's, that's something where if, if I owned a 700 unit, I wouldn't want to make it harder for me to, to utilize and kind of evict somebody. It's harder to fix somebody than actually foreclose. So it may, that's why they have such stringent guidelines. So we, it's really a policy issue that we need to address. That's, hey, if we want to really reduce the cost of rent in the city, we need to figure out how can we adjust that to give them the power and leverage to in case someone's not a good good tenant, we can, hey, you need to model the same features and form as a homeowner. You don't pay, you get served. You get served and you're out. I think if developers had that same kind of thought that they had the control, they would lower that cost to get in. Not because they their lower rent, but they'll lower their ratios. Um, the diversification of housing, um, that's important. Uh, we had a conversation already today, and it was interesting. I mentioned the Portofino. You know, we you looked at that pie chart, we had 75% of the pie chart, SFR detached. And then we had an array of other stuff the missing middle is very important. I mean, the Portofino has kind of two different models of homes. They have the larger attached walls and they have the shared cluster of parking lots. We have to create the opportunity to build where it is about density. So there's a few mechanics that we can't control. There's the four mechanics of development. It's hard to develop. You have the cost of land, can't control that. We can't control fees, but you have the cost of labor and, and construction and you have the cost of financing. So a lot of the projects throughout the country have gone silent because. Land costs have gone up. Costs of funds and cost of material, not even labor, cost material. So it's not that we have backwards are wrong. We need to be cognizant and aware of the economic mechanics that are making it hard to start the projects until some of those variables come back down online. You know, no developer is going to build at a loss. So we got to figure out like, we've got to be cognizant aware of that feature, but the cluster, Portofino has a great example of, if we get those kind of those overlapping circles back in line, we need to build where they could have entry-level housing as both rent and ownership with, without the thought that they're gonna stay there forever. That is their first home as they progress through the economic and development of empowering them with the better jobs, they will move up. Maybe the first home's 900 square feet, 1,100 square feet. They go to 1,500 square feet. They go to 2,000. They will move up. But we have to find a way to incentivize them to build in a manner that it's higher density for the thought that this is for ownership and the thought for rent, that we can kind of propel them to want to, to do it. I mean, it's as hard as, the, it's hard as to look at what we can't control, you know, the ratio of 30% is crazy. Um, it's, it's something that uh, is very frustrating. You know, I, I try to preach all the time at education financial literacy, you need to make sure that you have all the off balance sheets expenses because banks will ask those questions. They pretend like it, it doesn't exist. You need to find out what you want to pay and then find a house that matches that. The problem is there's nothing here. So, I mean, when it comes to the workforce housing, um, there's a lot of opportunities and possibilities to do workforce housing and public-private partnerships that hopefully we can explore and ways in which we can figure out how can we house and how can we incentivize the companies coming here to work with the developers to say, hey, maybe you can allot 25% of your development to these companies if we help pay for a certain costs, and maybe some of, the, some of the development is master planned to have kind of that is a big trend through CAR, California Social Realtors. They're talking about building smart. So a lot of these places they're doing in California where they're building new developments, they're building kind of sub communities in the community. So therefore they can build cluster, they can build higher density without having this abandonment of of, uh, amenities. So they build that into the project. So it's something that they're really working on the state level of trying to work with developers, working with cities to, to build in that mixed use. So therefore we can build smaller, we can build, we denser, but they don't feel like they're just stranded out in the middle of nowhere and they can't get, get milk. So sorry if I'm rambling on, but it's a uh, it's, passion about housing and passionate about us kind of getting it right because we have to create a community that if we're gonna go forward with, with biotech, the executive housing is paramount, but making sure that the least paid employee at that company doesn't have to travel to West Sac to find a place to live. Because then we're not we're not we're not winning. We got to make sure we have uh, home affordability. So the executive and the janitor can live in the same city at the same time. So it's it's a it's a challenge. You know, what incentives, what tax breaks can we do to incentivize companies? Maybe on a sliding scale, the first five years, reduce property taxes or whatever. If you help this developer build out 20 percent of the development to be workforce housing with emphasis on this price point. I mean, there's, there's ways we can do it, but I think we just got to really think big, but, um, uh, that's it.
4: You, if you could,
13: um,
0: question came up from public comment on that last slide, as far as where that data came from, it's not sourced in there other than 2022 data. Do we know where that came from?
1: Uh, this is actually from a state um, website. I pulled it last night and then I actually double checked each and every box this morning because it was one of those hand assembled things. I didn't want to somehow mess it up, but this data, I have to like reference my um, this document here. Um, it's essentially data from the American Community Survey. So it's where we, the United States goes out and actually surveys households in Vacaville. It's not sourced from workers. It's from actual people living here. Um, and so it's it's a, yeah it's a blend of the census and the American Community Survey data, but it is incomes of people that lived in Vacaville at the time that the data was gathered.
0: Thank you. Um, and then I, I had one other comment. Um, um, I do appreciate Councilmember Silva's point. An educated community is a higher paid community. I just know statistically that 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 works, and I'm pleased to see some of the programs that are, that are coming here so that we can do that. Everyone leaving here to go somewhere else and everyone somewhere, you know, elsewhere coming here just doesn't seem to, to be the answer. So uh, I know that there's gonna be a lot more coming at us. I, I really do appreciate this presentation. Um, I also do believe, and I've said it before, you can't unbuild what we build. And so I wanna make sure that whatever we do moving forward in strategies isn't um, what i would consider any type of a knee-jerk reaction i mean if we need to be strategic that we're missing something then let's find ways to get what we're missing and not necessarily completely retool what we're doing i mean i hear we have a supply and demand problem and so are we are we solving the bay area's problem and if that's only temporary then let's make sure that we don't set in policies Something that is more generic and global is if we're just going to be like everyone else, I don't want to see us that way. We do want to make sure that those who can't afford um, increasing rents, we need to be able to be strategic. And I would um, advocate that what we do as staff is we identify where those opportunities and risks are and have strategies for for how do we focus on that, that person and personalize it. The, the person who's on that uh, Social Security that can't afford the increase here. Are we creating a permanent solution to a temporary problem? I want to make sure that we avoid that. But I appreciate the presentation. Seeing no other uh, lights up here, I just uh, I know there's more coming and the opportunity to understand this in, in depth. Thank you very much. And uh, with that, uh, thank you. And this meeting's adjourned.